during Advent um, is we will have our readings, both scripture readings and for the lighting of the candles done by some of our well teens. So please welcome with me, Eleanor Mackey and Gwen Mackey. You can give them a round of applause. Good morning, my name is Eleanor and Gwen. Uh, as Christmas approaches, we observe the season of Advent. Advent means arrival and is the time of year the church celebrates the arrival of Jesus and looks forward to his coming arrival when all things will be made new. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Advent reminds us to look forward in hope, as we will learn today. Advent begins in the dark, and darkness reminds us of our need for the light. This week, we will not light a candle, but remember our need for Jesus as our light, as our hope in a broken world. The prophet Isaiah foretold about the deliverance and hope that God would bring. Today, we look back knowing that hope, that hope has come in Christ and look forward to when Christ will retu- return. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah 9-2. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and our salvation. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Um, we also do the scripture reading. So, okay. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 18 to tw- through 20. Um, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, who which he saw the concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Come now, let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, that you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you. You can give them a round of applause. Yeah, that was a lot. Advent, um, for some of you, is probably something that you grew up with. For many of you, it probably isn't. You just think of this more as generally the Christmas season. Um, but here at Jacob's Well, for, uh, for as long as I've been going here, which is as long as the church has existed, so for as long as uh, we've been around, um, we've celebrated Advent, which is this very specific season in the church calendar. The church throughout the centuries has observed certain seasons um, and created a kind of rhythm to the year through those seasons, not just fall, spring, winter, you know, the, the ones that we're used to, but things related to the life and ministry of Jesus. And so probably not telling you anything new whether you've been around these things or not, but this is the season in which the church anticipates the coming of Jesus into the story, his birth, right? And yet, what Advent has served as for the church is um, rather than what it's become largely in the West, which uh, is a season of, of joy, a season of delight, a season of um, right, happy things. You think of all the Christmas carols that we sing. 
really what Advent is meant to do is um, to be a season where we acknowledge that we live in the in-between. That Advent, the word itself, is actually uh, comes from a Latin word that, that's this idea of arrival. It's the anticipation of an arrival. That's what Advent is. And while we normally think of that arrival being the arrival of Jesus, of baby Jesus, into the story, born of a virgin, right, all, all of these things, there's also the anticipation of another arrival, which is Jesus' second coming when he will come, and and we actually talked about this literally last week, if you were with us, his arrival uh, a second time to make all things new, to to judge the world, which we normally think of only in negative terms, um, but really judging the world is putting the world to rights. And so it's setting things right. It's, It's transforming the world from a world of brokenness and sin into what God originally intended it to be. What Advent is, is it's a season where we remember that we live between those two arrivals, if you will. We live between the, the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. And some would even add that there's a sense in which we really live between the first advent of Jesus in, babe, in, uh, of Jesus in, in bodily form, in, in a manger and all those things, this, the third advent of Jesus when he returns again. But there's this second advent, which is Jesus coming to us now by his spirit. Jesus being present to us in the midst of that in between. And that's the provision for us as we live between those two things. And so what I particularly have appreciated over many years, and I'm looking out at some of the faces who have now been at Jacobswell a long time and you've been living this advent rhythm, what, what I've always appreciated is, right, Melly d- just shared, um, I know that there's struggle in this room. I know that there's pain in this room. I know that there's loss, fairly, fairly recent loss even, in this room. And sometimes Christmas can feel like <laughs> the worst possible thing to walk through when you're there because everybody else is holly, holly, jolly, right? And it's like, oh, Christmas. And that can actually add, because we, we normally, right, like it's a lovely thing to be happy around Christmas and all of that, but then you go through some hurt, pain, loss, and you realize, oh, it almost doubles the pain that now we got to do Christmas? What's beautiful about Advent and the way that the church has observed it over the years is that Advent is actually meant to be a very somber, Fleming Rutledge, who you'll hear me refer to, she's a, she's a theologian whose book on Advent has been just absolutely revelatory for me and for many, many others. Um, I think her thinking on Advent is, is as good as it gets. Is She's actually the one who says what, what uh, Gwen and Eleanor said, which is this idea that Advent starts in the dark. That Advent is actually a season that's, that's more about darkness than it is about light. Because the whole idea of Advent is it's an anticipation of an arrival. It's not the arrival itself. It's actually meant to be, what Advent really is, is it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, which, which, point of interest. Um, This year, there's five Sundays after Thanksgiving before Christmas, because Christmas is on a Christmas Eve. So for the technical among us, today actually isn't the first day of Advent, next week is. But I felt like it was really appropriate to do this this week, because what Advent is really meant to do is 
it's meant to give us a sense of longing for what's coming. It's meant to give us a sense that, that we're waiting. And I don't know where you are this morning. I know I actually know where many of you are, but I don't know where all of you are. But I know that many of us feel like we're waiting. Might not even be sure what we're waiting for. It just, it just feels like we're waiting. And one of the great themes of the scriptures is this idea of waiting on the Lord, that it's part of the experience of faith, that the answer doesn't always come, the provision doesn't always come, the comfort doesn't always come, the, the, you know, the, the great miracle doesn't always come. Sometimes it just feels like we're waiting. And Advent says yes to that. It says yes, and may you enter a season with, with a community of people where that reality is normalized rather than made to feel, hey, you're a real bummer around Christmas. Hey, get a little Christmas spirit, right? Like embrace that Hallmark vibe or whatever, right? Those movies. Um, that actually the church has always said, yes, a provision is coming. Yes, a day is coming when all things will be made new. Yes, a baby is going to be born in Jerusalem who's, who's good news for all, who will, who will bring what we've longed for for centuries. But first, there's waiting. And so let's spend this month waiting. Now, that might sound like a bummer to you, given where you're at, but I bet to some of you who are in a place of grief, loss, pain, suffering, sickness, that you feel like, man, there's something really wonderful about feeling permission from church history, not from me, from church history to say, no, it's normal. That experience of faith is normal and appropriate as we head into the Christmas season. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great uh, theologian who, um, he, was in, he was a German theologian during the, the rise of Nazism and eventually was imprisoned for uh, starting an, an underground church that was uh, faithful against the teachings of Nazism. He maybe even was implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, right, like I would say, like my kind of theologian, right? Like he, he put his actions, nobody knows if that's actually true, but he died at the hands of the Nazis. He died in a Nazi prison. He was ultimately hanged for his faith. And he wrote, um, he actually took with him when he knew he was going to prison, he took with him a giant stack of Advent cards from, from his church. And throughout his time in prison, he, he largely would meditate upon uh, this whole idea of Advent, especially, obviously, during that season. And one of the things that he says in those letters is he says, you know, being in prison is a kind of Advent because it's a whole lot of waiting. And you're waiting <laughs> between the, the freedom you once experienced and the freedom that awaits you, whether through actually getting out of jail or whether through the freedom of death but it's waiting. And he says, prison itself has a whole lot of advent to it. And life itself has a whole lot of what he was experiencing at that time. Again, not the most hopeful Christian message, but I think affirms something about our experience. That life can feel like we're between maybe some really wonderful things, some really great seasons that we've had, and we hope something out in front of us but so often it feels like we're just in the waiting. That's what Advent is about. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that's what we're actually 
meant to observe during this time, which is why for this specific Advent for us at Jacob's Well, uh, I've chosen to, to highlight um, Isaiah, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, and some of the highlights from Isaiah, because not only is Isaiah one of the prophets who is most often quoted around Christmas time, and you'll hear that as we go through this series. It's the virgin shall be with child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Um, he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? The things that we sing in, in Handel's Messiah, largely taken from Isaiah. Not only is that true, that Isaiah picks up, or that we really pick up a lot of the language of Isaiah around Christmas time, but also Isaiah himself was living in a kind of Advent. The, um, the opening verse, in fact, of Isaiah, which Eleanor very bravely read with all those king's names, is actually really significant, and it's why uh, I asked her to courageously read those king's names. So it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that sets the historical context. Here's what's going on. Um, I won't, you know, say everything there is to say about the background of Isaiah, because it's not like we're going through the whole book. We actually did that a bunch of years ago here at Jacob's Well, if you're curious about more of that. But what I will say is that the prophecy of Isaiah stands at one of the people of God, Israel's, most vulnerable points in its entire history. To tell the story really quickly, God sets apart after the fall of Adam and Eve. God sets, um, chooses this one man, Abraham, who's like super random. He's a moon worshiper in the middle of nowhere. Chooses him, pursues humanity in and through him, says, I'll make a nation for you, uh, through you. Eventually, Abraham's offspring becomes the people of Israel, God's chosen people. That people long for a day in which they will be ruled by a righteous king. The first king that they have that they beg for is not that king. The second king that they have is as close as they'll ever experience to that, namely King who? You hear a lot about him around Christmas. Good. King David. King David, when he dies, um, his sons actually split up the nation. Um, ten tribes go north, two tribes go south. There's a north and south division in the nation. Does that sound familiar, right? Like some of these things are, you know, tale as old as time. Like there's this division in the nation and, and one ruler takes these tribes up north, one ruler takes these tribes down south. Into that, that that's right where Isaiah shows up, into that national crisis is added actually an existential threat because now there are these empires arising at this time that this is being written. It's Assyria, if you know your history. Um, Assyria is arising and bearing down on this already divided nation, eventually capturing those 10 tribes that went north. Isaiah is speaking at a time where yet another empire, now it's Babylon, is bearing down on that southern version of God's remaining people. And right into that, Isaiah shows up. Can you feel the sense of Advent in that, in the way that I was just articulating it? Everything is falling down around God's people. Nothing is going the way that it's supposed to be going. And I feel like I have to acknowledge, all this week I'm preparing this, and I'm like, I feel like I have to acknowledge just the strangeness of doing this given the situation in Israel right now. 
And I just want you to know, this is no comment on that. I don't think that this has some direct uh, relevance to it. But I felt that this week of like, man, the world is still raging against itself, right? And there is still war and conflict in the very place that this, this was literally written uh, 2,700 years ago, right? And yet, here we are again. Um, but that's what this is written into. And it says that a vision is given to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah seems to have been a priest uh, working in the temple. Uh, he was a holy man. He was trained to be uh, a go-between between God and God's people. So he's in the temple. Uh, we'll talk about this next week. Uh, he gets this vision while he's in the temple, just kind of going about his everyday business, just doing his job. God shows up to him. And God shows up very dramatically to him. And God says, you're now going to go from being a priest to a prophet. A priest who's inside, somewhat protected from the people, going about your duties. Now I need you to go out, and I need you to say some things to my people that are going to be really hard for them to hear. And this is what God gives him to say. What God gives him to say is called a vision. Now what's interesting is when we think of God giving someone a vision, we think of some ecstatic experience where God puts them into some sort of trance and shows them crazy things. Really, biblically, what I would much rather you think of it as is that it's actually God giving this person not, not sort of a different kind of sight. It's like giving them more sight. It's like increasing their ability to see. It's like he's pulling back the veil that's on their eyes and that's on the world and giving them a sense of what's really and actually going on. That's what it means. Now, that might sound really cool, like, ooh, I want to know what's really going on. I want to know the true state of things. That might sound fascinating, like, ooh, God, give me that, until we hear what Isaiah actually sees with that greater sight, because here's what he sees. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. If you're not following along with me, please do. I am in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Ani, would you put, yeah, scrolly Bible, my best friend. Good. Okay. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So the first thing that he does is he's calling his people into a kind of trial, and notice the witnesses that he calls. Who are the witnesses here? Who is it? The heavens, right? The heavens and the earth. They're called as witnesses. Now, this isn't just, hey, come look at what I'm going to do. Think of a trial. Who are witnesses? Witnesses are people who have been mostly either negatively or positively impacted by the actions of the one who is on trial. And they're called to bear witness to the impact that it's had. In other words, what follows in terms of God's articulation of what his people have done. And by the way, I'll give you a little preview. Hopefully you were listening when the girls read it, right? Like, it's not good. Advent begins in the dark. Isaiah's prophecy begins in the dark. Even our hope begins in the dark. And the negative impact of what we have done extends to the created order itself, right? And I don't care what your politics are, but there is a reality that even nature itself suffers under the weight of human sinfulness. That's why God calls them as witnesses. He says, you come bear witnesses. 
you know better than anyone. You've been present with these people all along, and you know the negative impact that they've had on the way that I intended things to be. He says, children have I reared and brought up. Interesting that he calls them children, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. This is not a compliment, right? Uh, Donkeys and oxen are not your like, you know, paragons of animal kingdom wisdom. They are dumb animals. And he's bringing them up because they're kind of dumb, lumbering animals. He says, but at the end of the day, an ox knows where it needs to go to get fed. A donkey knows that its greatest need is to return to its master because its master is going to keep it alive. My kids, my creation, even my hand-picked selected people don't have even the, the vague survival instinct and intelligence of oxen and donkeys. This is bad. Here's what we're going to learn in this passage. Two, two very simple movements here. One is we're going to get a better, better understanding of sin. Now, Pastor Jalen preached on sin a, a few weeks back, and I would, I would send you to that, and I'll just kind of pick up on some of the themes from that. And then we're going to look at the unbelievably surprising supr- promise of the remedy for sin. So the nature of sin and the remedy for sin. The first thing that we can say about sin is it's it's finding our provision, sustenance, and survival in anything but God. Or maybe more to the point, it's believing that we can provide for ourselves from our own resources. Sin is believing we can provide for ourselves from our own resources. This is something that oxen and donkeys learn not to do. Because an oxen is in a bad way when it says, you know what? I could hold down a job. I could go and make sufficiently what I need to feed myself whatever it is an oxen, an ox eats, right? I'll just wander off and do my own thing. This is a very vivid picture of the foolishness of human sin. Because you know what human sin is? It sounds like this every single time. I know God said, but I think, right? Which, by the way, if you know your Bible at all, (laughs) sounds a lot like a conversation had on the first couple pages of our Bible. This, this, is, this is the language of the human heart, right? And, and I, I know this would be best, but what I actually think I need right now is that's the language of sin. And it's there in all of us, right? Like Sin isn't just about individual actions. This is what Jalen said a couple weeks ago. Sin isn't just about the individual action of sin. It's a power that exists in the world. It's like the way that that we as humanity are bent is to say, yeah, I know, but what I'm feeling right now is, and God says this leaves us off wandering, malnourished, confused, disoriented, and then we wonder why. Verse four, ah, sinful nation a people laden with iniquity. These are just different words for sin. Hebrew has all kinds of words for sin. Offspring of evildoers. 
children who deal corruptly. For they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The first whisper of grace is actually a cry of God's heart in this passage. And it's, it's this ah word. See that word there, ah, in verse four? I would circle that word if I were you. Ah, sinful nation. The official uh, dictionary for, for the Hebrew Bible defines this word ah, and you're like, you needed the word ah defined for you? Yes, I needed the word ah defined for me. It defines it, I love this, as I want to get the exact language right, as grievous threatening. Grievous threatening. It's really interesting. The threatening, right, is the come back. You're in danger. There's a cliff over there. Something terrible is going to happen to you. The grievous is the type of heart and posture and emotion that that warning is coming from. Some of us think of God only as a threatening God, full stop. He's threatening me. I know he wants to get me. I can feel his judgment upon me. I know that if I keep doing this thing that I promised him I'm not going to do, that he's going to, that, he, that I feel the threat over me. But what this passage reminds us is that the threat of God is always paired with the grief of God over our sin. Do you notice already he called them children? We said that this is, a, this is a, like a legal courtroom scene, and yet the judge is calling his own children in. And that judge has a father's heart that is grieving over what his children are experiencing and grieving over what will yet come to them if they don't take him up on the opportunity that he's going to present. That's who God is. That's God in the waiting. Now, some of us are waiting because of ways in which we've experienced the sinfulness of this world, ways in which the reality of, of sin and death and betrayal and these kinds of things have entered into our story. And God has a grieving heart over those things towards you. Some of us are in the midst of waiting because of our own sin, because of our own rebellion, because of our own slowness of heart to return to him. And I wonder if one of the things that you need to hear in order to come all the way home is to know that the Father grieves over you in that absence, in that what he calls here estrangement. You see that at the end of verse four? It's another thing that sin does. It leaves us utterly estranged. It's a relational category in the scriptures. Sin isn't just about there's a God who likes us to do good things. We want to do bad things. And so God is mad right? No, this is a relational category. This is about a father who has set for his children a life of flourishing, given them everything that we need for that flourishing, and then watched us spurn all of that, walk away from us, and now grieves and says, that is not the way that it's supposed to be. That is sin. So it's a relational category too. It's in a re relational estrangement that we see here. Verse five and six, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? More words for sin. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. 
but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Another thing that's true of sin is it's self-inflicted pain. He says, your rebellion, your relational estrangement from me has also caused a kind of holistic deterioration in, in, in every single part of who you are. And I don't think that he's talking primarily literally here as though they're experiencing physical sickness. I think that what he's saying is that both individually and as my people corporately, another thing that sin does is it slowly degrades what is human in us. The, the category that the scriptures use for us, uh, use for this, is that the scriptures have a kind of, um, or, or excuse me, that sin has a kind of enslaving dynamic to it. The, the best way that I've ever heard this put, unsurprisingly, is by Archbishop Tim Kelly. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget him sort of laying this out, is he once said that if you know the dynamics of addiction generally, You'll, you'll understand the dynamics of, of sin as well. What he means by that, and I want to be very careful on how I say this, is not that all addiction is sin, or not that addiction is, is merely sin. Right? Like, I, we have addiction in our family. We've come to understand these things deeply through experiences and, and through education and rehab and all that. So, so, I understand all of the nuances that go into addiction, and there can be many, many different variables that go into that. So please hear that this is, this is not saying addiction equals sin and, and it's chosen and all that. I get that there's many variables, but all sin has an addictive quality to it. Here's what's true about sort of the dynamics of addiction. One, one of the ways that, that addiction begins is, the, is through the building of tolerance. The thing that you go to for comfort, whether that's you know, alcohol or substances or, or whatever, um, I won't name more, but you know, what, whatever that addictive thing is, there's a tolerance dynamic that kicks in at some point where what used to actually satiate what you needed satiated whatever it was, right? Anxiety, pain, uh, whatever, depression, whatever, whatever thing you're using to cover. What, what used to work, the amount that used to work doesn't work anymore at some point. So there's this building of tolerance. Very similar with sin. Where sin has this downward spiral to it where when we choose it, we normally choose it, right? We're, we're motivational beings. So we choose sin precisely because we think it's gonna do something positive for us. And maybe when we first choose it, it does. It satisfies in some way. And yet, the more it satisfies, the more we need of it. That's the tolerance effect. The next thing that happens is that there's a, a denial dynamic where people try and speak into this area of our life and we become very defensive of it. We become very um, self, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? We become really good at sort of this self-deception that self-validates our behavior. And so there's this denial thing, which that denial element has a way of isolating us. 
Sin has this isolating dynamic to it because we don't want it revealed to anyone because we don't want anyone speaking into it. And then eventually, we fall into this wild thing where that sin begins to destroy even our willpower itself. What we used to use in order to choose that thing is actually destroyed and we feel the lack of choice when it comes to doing that thing. And so the use of our will becomes actually the destruction of our will. What once promised freedom from actually slowly takes whatever freedom we have from us. Okay? <laughs> That's what Isaiah is getting at here. Is he saying these are the dynamics that you're experiencing individually and corporately as my people? Where you chose a little bit of sin. And then you chose a little bit more, chose a little bit more, and found yourself in this downward spiral where you're choosing things that you couldn't imagine choosing before. Then you were in denial. You didn't come to me with that. You isolated yourself in that. You didn't want anyone to know that. You felt uh, sort of partially self-validated in your need for it, but also ashamed for anyone else to see that. And eventually, you got yourself into a place where you realized, I can't get out of this. I can't get out of this cycle. And God says that has this holistic sense of being bound by sin, to use the language of the apostle Paul. I just want to know, I'm going to skip to verse 12. God says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Again, I'm in verse 12. Bring no more vain offerings, incense. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I can endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Yikes. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deed from before my eyes. Do you hear what he's saying here? What God is saying is that there's a kind of isolation in our sin. There's a kind of willfulness in our sin that makes a gathering like this burdensome to God. What, he's just naming all of their religious practice here. He's just, he's just naming all of it. And he's saying, all that stuff that you're doing, all of the performance of religion for me is not neutral when my people are in sin. It's burdensome to me. I hate it. You know how rarely God says he hates something? If, if right, like, if I were to ask you, like, what does God hate What's so interesting is I think at very few of the top of our lists would be God hates when his people are in sin and do religious stuff anyway. He hates it. He hates that hypocrisy. Now, some of you, um, some of you visited family for Thanksgiving, and that's why you're here on Sunday. You're like, what am I doing in church? Um, 
And, and you feel that sense of what am I doing in church because you've witnessed this. You've experienced this. Oh, yeah, people love to do church on Sunday. But at the hands of those very people, I have suffered some of my greatest pain. I want you to hear that the God that those people claim to be worshiping hates that too. He hates that. He doesn't want religious performance with a heart that's far from him. He doesn't want religious emotiveness and hardness within towards what he actually cares about. God says, I find that as burdensome as you do. I want nothing to do with it. I hide my eyes from it. I wonder if you have a category for a God like that. Again, he is giving us greater vision to see what's actually going on, which honestly, as, as a pastor of this church, even thinking about this this week, it gives me pause, right? Like if we could pull back the veil of our happy appearances here of, you know, everyone's doing great. If we could pull back the veil and see what was actually going on, is what God sees burdensome to him or is it a delight to his heart? I don't know. And that's what can make this feel so consequential. What I can say is it matters what the answer to that is. Now, why is God saying all this? Why does God show up and give a vision to a priest in the temple and say, you've got to go say all this stuff to my church or to my people? Why, why do preachers get up on a Sunday and say these kinds of things? I don't know why other people do it, but, but I think why Isaiah is doing it, I think what I'm trying to do is to do this, to do something within us that actually makes us look inside for two seconds and say, which of those realities feels more true? But then here's the thing, God shows up into the story such that that might change. There's hope here. He could have left them in this state. Notice, he shows up out of nowhere to this random priest on like a random Tuesday, just doing his thing. And he says, it's enough. I have to speak and say something. And not just so that I get heard, not just so that you might know how awful you are, because listen to how this whole thing ends. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He's saying there is another way. This is possible. We can do things differently is what he's saying. What's beautiful here that I feel like I have to say, given, given one of our core identities being seeking justice and mercy is most of us, when we think of sin, we think of personal piety. How am I doing? What am I looking at or not looking at? How am I treating other people or not treating other people? How is that sin struggle that I've had for years going or not going? Yes, 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 all of that matters to God. But look at some of the categories that God adds to that. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That is the category that we think of now as social justice. That matters to God. 
I think because what he's doing here is he's talking both to the individual child of his, but he's also talking to his children. And he's saying, look, there's some things individually you might need to clear up, but there's also some things that my people are supposed to be about that you've forgotten, that you've cast aside for whatever reason. You've used excuses to them. And I think in our day, here and now, again, I think he's talking to both sides of the aisle. And he's saying, you're using excuses to not care about things that my heart cares about. Stop with that. Be my kids. Don't be the children of this party or that party. You're my kids and my kids care about certain things like the poor, like those who are oppressed and marginalized, like the voiceless, right? That's what he's getting at here. And when we use our political alliances to say, yeah, those issues, but not those, we're not being God's kids. We're being the children, my goodness, of donkeys and elephants. You know what I mean, (laughs) right? Like, let's be God's children and say, no, we can care about all of that together. We'll talk a lot about that in the coming months. We've got an election coming up. We've got to figure that out. But I just want you to see those paired here, okay? This isn't wokeism. This isn't, oh, here, here come the scary whatever you want to label, you want to put on. This is God's word. God cares about these things, okay? And yes, he cares about personal holiness and sexuality and the unborn and all those things, okay? But these are the things that he brings up here and says, for whatever reason, you've forgotten these. And to return to me looks like returning to these things. Now I love this. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Come now, let us reason together. What is my little... Yeah, my little note says dispute. Really what's going on here is is the best translation that I've seen of this is, come, let's consider your options here. Let's consider your options. What are our options in light of all of this? Here's what he says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says, what are your options? Destruction. Keep going. Keep going. Do you... I think this is one of the most interesting things. There are, there are a few concepts more offensive in our current cultural moment uh, about Christianity than sin. And I get that. I get that sin, right, has been screamed from pulpits and, and we isolate groups as the sinners. Um, when, by the way, the way you get in here is saying you're a sinner, like we're sinners. Um, I get that. At the same time, our culture's rejection of sin, I think, is, is one of the things that, that has been most harmful to us, if I can speak to, to an entire culture and moment. Because what sin does is it levels the playing field and says, yes, there's a bent in humanity against doing right, what's right for the other, and even a bent against doing right for ourselves. And Christianity says, yeah, we got a name for that. And maybe that word is now loaded up with all kinds of negative things for you, given your experience. But the biblical concept is really helpful in explaining why the world is the way that it is. In fact, I I recently overheard, I won't say where I heard this, but I recently heard someone talking about, right, a, a category of sin, and someone said, can you imagine not allowing someone 
to, to fully be themselves and fully express themselves. This is very popular in our cultural moment, right? You've heard this before. That what makes sin problematic is it puts categories on what's right and wrong when the arbiter of what's right and wrong should, should, be, should be our own inner sense of things, should be our, our own inner desire and things, right? Like, this is the air we breathe. This is not coming at anyone. This is where we're at, right? Like, you do you, uh, live, your, live your life, you know, that whole concept, right? And, <laughs> and the person who heard this and, and was telling me this, uh, follower of Jesus, they said, I just wanted to say in that moment, like, you don't want me to live my full desires. You don't want that. And you don't want everyone around you to be fully liberated to be exactly who they want to be. That's what's wrong with the world, is that there's too much of that. And if, right, like, this is what makes our, I think that this is what makes our cultural moment so profoundly confusing. Whether you're like all in on it or not, whether you sort of feel like you're outside of it or whether you're living within it, is um, you do you, I do me, but I don't like what you just did, so stop doing you, but only don't do you in that way because that you, I don't like that you, but you, but I want you to, but I also want to, right? Like it's very confusing. It is. And I think that this is, right? I work with college students for so long and, and it's very confusing because people are still hurt all the time. And that can be very confusing in a moment where the full expression of every desire you have is supposed to be liberation. And yet everyone around you is hurt and depressed. And we have an unrivaled mental health right, crisis in this nation. All that stuff is not accidental. And I'm not putting it all at the feet of that. Again, I, I like to think I'm a fairly nuanced uh, person on all of these things. But there is some truth to the fact that that confusion that we're like sending our kids into and going... Live you until you hurt someone else and then it falls back on you until someone else is living in a way that actually harms you and then come back and we'll try and figure it out. Okay, what do you, what do you, what's needed? First, what's needed is someone who can speak into that authoritatively and say, no, this is the way a human being thrives and this is not. That's who God is. He's our father. He's our creator. He's the, he's the wise one. I love that the name most given to God in the book of, uh, of Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. Holy One, holy there. Uh, my, my favorite definition of holy, I think this comes from the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that, but is, uh, is this, we normally think of holy and we think of morally righteous, and that's definitely in there, but really what holy is is, is totally and utterly unique. There's nothing like it um, that's even worth comparing to. And the example that they give is, is the sun is holy in our solar system. It's unlike anything else. It, it has a, a power and uniqueness. Everything orbits around it. There's nothing, there's no other sun but, but the sun, S-U-N. That's holiness. And this says, and, and what Isaiah is at pains to, when he sees behind realities, he goes, man, you see God, you see a holy one. Totally unique, totally distinct, unlike anything else. Everything should orbit around it. It's, 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 it's the, the energizing force of the universe is the sun. There's something about God that's similar to that. Listen to him. If there's anyone who gets to speak authoritatively, it's him. But notice, he's the holy one of Israel. Now that takes God from cosmic huge God to the God of a very specific group of people to a God who can get intimate enough to be in relationship 
with a people who actually have a need. That's what we need. We need a God who is wholly infinite and other than us, who can speak authoritatively into this. But we also need a God who can come close enough, who we know is trustworthy and good and has our best intentions at heart, who says over our sin, not, oh, oh, but who says, ah, sinful nation, who grieves over us. And then what we need is a power that can actually change us that actually, can actually do something about that bent within us. You notice what he says? Here are your options. Go to utter destruction or check this out. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. How does that happen? Through, through self-effort? You ever tried that path? It don't happen that way. Very few of us. If you... If you're a human being, you have some sense that there is a kind of taintedness to you. You have some sense, man, if people knew it all, whew, I don't want everyone to know it all. God's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's this inner sense, this inner uncleanness that's the result of your estrangement from me. I can change that. I can take that stain and I can clean it. Notice he, he sort of heightens the image here. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I like that because I picture sort of a, a scarlet uh, garment of some kind and then just beautiful snow kind of drifting down upon it, covering it. This is one of the ways that scripture talk about what God does in Christ. That Jesus, in coming and bearing our sin, it literally goes on him. The stuff that has caused us to be unclean is somehow taken out of us, put on Jesus, and where there was stain, there is, there is now purity. Like, like snow falling on that garment. Our, our sins are covered. But it's almost like Isaiah says, no, nah, that's, that's not quite good enough. They shall be white as snow. Yeah, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. He says, no, let, let's talk about the garment itself, the red garment. It's going to go from stained crimson to white wool. You know the only way that that happens? Is if it becomes a totally new thing. As if it becomes an entirely different garment. If, if, if the, what's there is actually like a, like a new creation, like, like a new created thing, God says, you got that option. That's what I can do. That's what I bring. How did he do it? He did it. We'll talk about this actually on Christmas Eve, Isaiah 52 and 53. There was one who was predicted 700 years before Jesus who would come. And do you notice here that it says that sin, it, it bruises us. It says he was bruised for our iniquities. It says it, it leaves this wound. It says by his wounds, our wounds are healed. Right? Jesus, right here in Isaiah 1, in the midst of God's seemingly most grievous threatening over sin, we have whispers of how God will actually do this new creative act of taking something that is stained red and making an entirely new material altogether by putting everything that caused that damage and putting it amazingly on himself, bearing that weight himself. It's really good to have a grievous father as the king of the universe. It's even more stunning 
for that one to come and put himself in the place of all of the weight and consequence and punishment that we deserve such that we might know true freedom. Not the freedom of a downward spiral that ends. You know what the Christian life can feel like? The exact opposite of all of those dynamics. The exact opposite. Is it's like what looks like actual boundness. Oh, I got to live that way. I got to live as a Christian. Uh, that seems really bound up. That seems really narrow. That seems like I'll have few choices. Begins to actually look like our freedom. And instead of that denial dynamic, we go, actually, the more I'm known and the stuff that I'm ashamed of, the more I'm freed of that stuff. I had someone very recently uh, confess some, some very, very, uh, yeah, just, just something that they were burdened by, loaded. And as soon as they said it, they said, somehow I feel better, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, because you're living in this way. And then ultimately, I guess the tolerance thing does kind, of, does kind of work, right? Like, we just want more of that. We just want more of that. Because the more we get of it, the more satisfied we become. It doesn't dilute, right? And this is what makes us, some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. This is what still makes us oxen and donkeys, right? There's not some arrival point. If, if you're on your way with Jesus, if you're not there yet, like, yo, you walk with him for a long, there's still oxen and donkey tendencies. Because you and I know full well that every step, I'm talking to people who've been walking with Jesus for a while, every step you've ever taken in obedience toward him ended up being like, oh, that's so much better. And yet we still go, I know God says, but what I think is, right? And yet the more we get of it, the more we go, yeah, but I do want more of it. So I'm going back on Sunday. I'm going to sit and listen, right? I'll end with this thought. I think there's really two invitations here. One is, is to repentance and to coming out of your sin and to coming out of your hard-heartedness toward God, toward coming out of whatever excuses you've used to be far from him. And I wonder if the people who need to hear that most are maybe the people who are sitting here right now who think they need it the least. that you need to be woken up. You need to let God pull back the veil of your life and say, things are not as they seem, and God knows that, and he says, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to live like this the rest of your life. You don't. There's freedom. There's real freedom. And so we just invite you to embrace that invitation to repentance today. Repentance is a very fancy religious word that just means do it another way. Turn around and go another way. That's what... That's what Isaiah is calling the people to. This is what God's people have done constantly over centuries too. There's some comfort in that for me. It's like, we think that our repentance is gonna be like, oh, finally, like, my goodness, you finally did. And so we resist and say, oh, it's gonna be so, God is like, my people repent. That's what they do. Like, okay, you're back in sin, like repent. Repent and return to me. Like, this is the rhythm of the life of faith. This is what we do. The second invitation here is to embrace the grace of Jesus, like for real that you really are a new creation if you've put your faith in him. And I wonder if the people who need to hear that most are the people who think they need it the least as well. Because sometimes it's the people who feel most burdened by sin, most unworthy, most like they don't belong, who are actually most in need 
of a genuine declaration of grace over your life. And sometimes in a community like ours, it's actually those people who are doing all of the guilt bearing for the rest of us. Does that make sense? Like some of you who are feeling guiltiest, given what I've preached right now, need, need just a word of grace spoken over to you and need me to somehow be able to see that and to say, that ain't for you. You need to believe that God has really forgiven you. You need to believe that you really are a new creation. You need to believe that you're not crimson. You're not scarlet anymore. That's done away with. That's an old chapter. And yet, <laughs> here's, here's, what I, here, here's what I feel as a preacher, those tend to be confused. The people who feel that way say, oh, I just need to repent again. Oh, God's mad at me. Oh, my life is not what it's supposed to be. No, 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 you need grace. And then the people who are sitting here are like, mm, more grace. Mm, mm, mm. Feels good. <laughs> totally forgiven. I don't need to change anything. You need to wake up. Because God is saying from head to toe, you are sick. My mother-in-law says, if you're sick, go to the doctor, right? Like, if you're sick, go to the doctor. And he says, stop denying it. Don't sit and become at ease in your sin. And I just wonder if I possibly could, if I could see some sort of quotient in this room, if I could just switch those values a little bit. That's what I would do. That's what I want to depend on the Holy Spirit to do, even as we come to this table. Because some of you need to experience this table somewhat tremblingly coming here in repentance saying, God, I know I'm not worthy of this. I know I'm not worthy of this. God, I'm, I'm waking up to my sin. God, I need new hope. God, thank you that you offer it at this table. Others of you need to come joyfully and say, God, thank you that I really am forgiven. Thank you that all of my guilt is just self-inflicted. But God, thank you that it is real, that the gospel is real, that it's really good news and that it's for me and that I'm free today, that I'm actually free. God, thank you that I'm not who I even see myself as sometimes. I'm who you see me as, full stop. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray that you do that work now by your spirit. God, that some need to be woken up to their sin and to come to repentance, maybe for the first time, but maybe just the first time in a long time. God, would you press in on that right now? God, others bear weight of guilt that's already been carried by you. It's already been repented of, dealt with. And yet the enemy has this, this card that he can play in these moments that says, yeah, but what about this? I pray that we'd be able to push that aside and say, no, fully forgiven, fully transformed. God, whichever one it is, I pray that your spirit would be working on us as we come to this table. And God, that the clarity would come from there, not from our own conscience, not from our own sense of things, not from the voices of other people who have either spoken okayness over our sin or have spoken condemnation over what's been forgiven. God, do that work even as we come this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.